We'll be asking the questions, old man. Who are you? You. No, not me, you. Yes, I am you. Just answer the damn questions. Who are you? Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, boss man. It's good to have you. How are you? I'm pretty damn good. I'll tell you what. My computer just took a big fat you-know-what on this podcast, and we were like 15 minutes in, and that was fire, and so we're going to have to take it to the next level to duplicate our success. I need a new laptop, so I'm just going to say it here at the top. Can someone at me on Twitter and tell me what laptop to get? This is a 2014 MacBook Pro. It's been an incredible tank. I hate to get rid of it, boss man. Here's the problem with Apple, though. Of course, it never feels like an update, (laughs) so it just feels like you're spending money to get the same thing. I feel out of the laptop game. You know, it's been like so long. Stick around to today's episode. We're answering your questions. We are going to talk about diversifying your identity and business into other countries. We're going to reflect on how long we think it takes to build a fully automated four-hour workweek business. We're going to dig into some questions about that and also how the landscape has changed for building and selling assets, i.e. online businesses, in 2021. That and more. Stick around to today's ep. And as always, we appreciate your questions that inspire these episodes. How about a little chatter at the top, boss man? I've been talking a lot of noise about your sales chops, about the fact that you've been on sales phone calls instead of on this podcast. Actually, something that's been a really bright surprise in our business lately. Yeah, and you showed up to a sales call the other day. And of course, after being on one sales call and me being on about 100, you had all these great ideas. That's right. (laughs) I'm like a work expander. Good idea, Glenn. I'm like, hey, I really think we should be doing more in these sales calls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, typical manager. You know, I tamped it down real quick, though. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have much of it. Uh, Even if you did have a good idea, I wasn't going to be hearing it. But yeah, we've actually been doing some amazing work over there. If I, can say so myself, in placing people in your guys' companies. So a lot of people have listened to this podcast, they've heard our pitch, and uh, they've shot us an email. Uh, Basically, it's a done-for-you hiring service. So you show up, hopefully with a job description in hand, and we go out and find the right person for you. It gets pretty complicated and it gets pretty technical, but we're building a team around the process. And people have been delighted that they can kind of be hands-off on the approach, and we deliver them somebody that's going to be excellent in their business. People are coming to us for a couple of things. One, they're trying to figure out like, hey, does this person exist? Number one, hey, have you guys hired for this person before? And what is it going to cost me? And then sometimes, and this is a new feature on our website, sometimes hiring isn't the right solution for them. And we cooked up this little thing. If you go over to uh, dynamitejobs.com, there's this tab and it's called Browse Services. Yeah. I mean, so basically the idea is this. I mean, this is super early days, super, super early days, but in terms of our product. But the idea is basically one we've been exploring sort of philosophically on the show for a decade, which is that the corporation continues to get melted down into its elemental parts. There was this book I was reading the other day, which is fantastic. Go out and pick up The Sovereign Individual. We're going to do 
a rereadables episode on this book in the near future. It's so very prescient, Ian, written in 96. One line really jumped out at me because it resonated with my own belief, which it was a little bit unsaid, which is, in the future, we won't have jobs. We'll just have tasks. And I was like, yes, that's what's happening. And it's not just contractors and freelancers and outsourced professionals and stuff like this. It's increasingly becoming really targeted, agile services, you know? Maybe five years ago, there's this big blob of things called agencies, you know, that sort of do all this stuff and they still do and play a very critical role. But increasingly, we're seeing these super agile services that sort of with expertise do a very specific function in your online business. We've been calling them productized services. So I do think people talk about them in the same breadth. It's actually the same budget consideration for a lot of companies. And in our community, we're seeing more and more budget going towards agile services than that overhead of full-time staff, which is the nucleus of your company. But increasingly so, you're going to have less and less headcount for more and more revenue. That's the trend. All right, so we'll revisit that in a future episode. Let's dig into some of these listener questions, Ian. So Alan writes, I've been exploring the ideal of multiple passports. That's right. Many people online talk about this idea of diversifying your citizenship, Ian. A lot of different words for it. Sovereign individual is one you could say. The sovereign individual book suggests that in the future, people will purchase national identity and credentials as sort of a service. And they use like, I think in the book, they use Malta as an example. There's more and more of these sort of like nationality as a service products coming out. And we've you know talked about them on the show many times. Back to the listener question. Turns out I qualify for a couple different ones due to ancestry and was talking with my family about it. I recall you mentioning a few years ago, maybe getting Spanish citizenship so you could buy property over there. Am I right? Have you abandoned that? That got me wondering, what are some of the business opportunities that open up when you have citizenship in multiple countries? Too long, didn't listen. Can having multiple citizenships make me a lot of money? I'm curious just how much you know about this. Well, the first thing is, I don't know a ton about it, Alan, but I'm certainly happy for the opportunity to talk a little bit about my experience. Now, the first things first, Ian, the correlation between wealth and multiple passports is I'm pretty clear on like whether it's chicken or egg. It's like wealthy people want to get multiple passports. It's not that like multiple passports makes you wealthy. And in fact, you know, having multiple passports can often open up some administrative burden, can give you accidental tax bills that maybe you don't know about or things you need to do to maintain or get that citizenship in the first place. So here's the deal. I think the reason wealthy people want multiple passports is because you know it is the ultimate optionality. The ability to have access to a second citizenship, a second place to live, a second set of rules, all those things could prove to be enormously valuable. If you think we've lived through a lot of change in the last 20 years, wait till the next 20 years come. You know, we don't exactly know how countries are going to perform which countries are going to change their legislation. And so, yeah, it's nice to have some diversification, Ian. So that's kind of the first thought I had, like if you can do it, and if you can do it with a low administrative burden, then you might as well go ahead and get the process started. Whenever I hear this question, Dan, I think about like the administrative burden or the administrative headache, because we've had different corporations in different countries. There's got to be like some kind of threshold, right? So it's like only do this if you feel like the opportunity is 
10x the administrative burden. I'm like specifically thinking right now about like our Hong Kong corporation. Yep. That's something that we started when there was advantages to having a corporation like that. Basically, most of the advantages at this point have disappeared. But at the time, it was advantageous to have that corporate structure and it did benefit us for several years. Now the time has come where the administrative burden it far outweighs the advantage of having that corporation. And it's interesting to see like the life cycle of that be like so short, basically, because like it was within like a matter of 10 years that it came up and then it went down. So essentially, yeah, to Alan, it's like, well, what what is the opportunity here? And for us, there was a serious opportunity and we took advantage of it for a while. Now it's like, how do I get rid of this thing? So <laughs> it's like anytime you spin up these ideas or you have this notion that you're going to like make money with something like a passport... I think you got to think about the administrative burden of that too, because it can be quite robust and difficult to kind of get through this stuff. And in fact, you might even need like a legal team or an accounting team to basically be on retainer the whole time you have access to that country or to that bank account or to that corporation. I'll mention one more thing on this. We know people like in the industry of helping people get passports and multiple citizenships, and then also like, you know, funneling money around the world. So it's advantageous tax wise. When you become rich, those people find you <laughs> because they're trying to make money and they're trying to figure out a way to to make money off your situation basically. So if you're if you're looking at it the other way, like you're seeking out the opportunities to make money, it's kind of a little bit backwards, right? If that makes sense, Dan. It's like once you become rich enough, like these people they find you. <laughs> like in the yacht harbor. Yeah. That's where they I'll say <laughs> I'll say this too about the opportunity. Like I, I think I asked you a couple months ago. We have like a mutual friend that's hanging out in one of these countries. I was like, how does he do it? Your answer was like, he's rich. That is kind of like the answer to this. It's like, oh yeah, like you want to buy a house, you want to get a second passport, you want to do this or that. Like one approach is just to be rich, to get all this stuff done. Yeah, 100%. And so let's talk about that then because, you know, one final piece on this is this idea of, you know, making a lot of money. There's two ways to do it. The way I kind of came into it was is like, okay, you start your business in your home country and that's where your opportunities are and you work really hard and then you see opportunities for international diversification. So you start talking to some fancy lawyers and you start you know, placing little pieces around and doing this fancy, fancy stuff, try to save 15% here and 10% there. I really feel like nine times out of 10, that's a really bad strategy. And this is advice not only coming from me, but from some of my wealthiest friends. Why? Because your time is better spent creating opportunities, creating wealth, rather than making some weird meatball Sunday of a business where you're diversified internationally, you got trust here, you got this there, all that kind of stuff. Typically, we're talking big, big money to make that administrative hassle worthwhile. Now, I will say this, on the other side of that polarity, if you purpose build a business with a structure in mind, I've seen this work many times very well. What am I talking about? A lot of people right now are talking about wanting to have more Bitcoin. So one of the ways you can do that is you can build a business specifically meant to earn you Bitcoin. A lot of listeners have done that. Well, you can do the same thing with incorporations, with lifestyle, with a strategy for business. The simplest example that comes up often on this show, sometimes it's a little trickier for Americans because we're still always really gonna be responsible for a big part of our tax burden. But still for Americans, you can save that first $100,000 a year income tax-free. If say you live in Thailand and you're a tax resident there, you build a business that doesn't require you to be on the phone with clients, 
because typically you're going to be selling back to the West. And so that would be a huge disadvantage, but you build it in a very low cost structure with very low taxation with employees who cost a lot less provided you're still getting great talent for the kind of work you're doing. That makes a ton of sense. And if your tax burden is say anywhere from 40 to 10% even lower every single year, your personal burn is much, much lower. That can be a great way to start a purpose-built business based on that particular situation, provided you think it can exist for, say, five years. But I actually, you know, I was thinking about that topic because just like going through this, like looking at my rant and all this kind of stuff, like, you know, if we had to start fresh in America and like grow a business, like if you look at, and we'll get into this in the next question, but I think the point I was really trying to close on here, Ian, is like reducing your personal burn as you're trying to you know, get to a point where you can afford to live based on money you're making from your business, no small feat, you know, it's really, really tough. And so we'll get into that in the next question. If you run a growing seven or eight figure remote company, your next productive team member could be just one simple phone call away. Check it out. I'm running an ad for our own stuff. How cool. This week's sponsor is our very own done-for-you recruiting service for remote companies, courtesy of dynamitejobs.com. You can learn more at dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting. Our process starts with a simple, free, no obligation phone call with one of our senior recruiters and often the boss man himself. We'll get a sense for your company, your mission, the candidates you're seeking. We then go out and execute the entire job search on your behalf That includes marketing to our database as well as taking a lot of the budget from the service fee and going out and proactively marketing your job to third-party sites, services, communities, and so on to ensure you get the best candidates for each individual job. Again, we know how to do all this stuff. We perform all the filtering, the interviews, and the assessments on your behalf. So basically, we're delivering you qualified candidates who are interested in your position, who understand your needs and are looking to have that final conversation with you about you know whether or not it's a good fit. So obviously hiring can be a total pain in the butt, but the team at Dynamite Jobs does this stuff every day. We understand remote first businesses and have the systems and people in place do the job quick and reliably on your behalf. So with our new done for you recruiting services, you can stay focused or your team focused on what you guys do best and we'll take care of the hiring on your behalf. To learn more, head on over to dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting, schedule a call or drop us an email team at dynamitejobs.com. Next question from Norman. Thanks for the replay of episode 303. Ian, during snowpocalypse here in Austin or ice apocalypse or snowvid or whatever we're calling it, we just couldn't fully spend a bunch of time on the mics. And so we ran one of our favorite episodes of all time describing the sale of our first product manufacturing business. So Norman continues to write, for whatever reason, I've forgotten that Ian was only working five hours a week on that business when you sold it. Keeping in mind that the four-hour work week was overdone and mostly misunderstood by everyone back in the day and since, and I think Norman there is specifically referring, Ian, to the title, I think the topic would make for a great show in the context of the business you built and sold. So let's go through a few of these quick fire questions from Norman. The first is, how long did it take to get there? This is something I really wanted to talk a little bit about, Norman, and I'm glad for the prompt because 
thinking back to that idea of the expenses, and we talk all the time on the podcast about the thousand day principle. It's this idea that for three years, you're going to toil in squalor and you're going to drive an entrepreneur mobile and maybe your clothes aren't going to look that good or stylish because you know what you're doing? You're busy building your business and you're probably paying people more than you're paying yourself. Most likely. Yeah. That's a very common thing that happens in those first 1000 days. And frankly, Ian and I are back in those 1000 days. And over the last few months, our hard work, our toil has been paying off. We're starting to see some sunbeams coming through the clouds that maybe we're going to be able to pay ourselves more than we would make in a professional salary from the business that we've been building the last few years. I'll tell you what, my wardrobe is definitely suffering though. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Glad you brought it up, pointed it out. So the reason I wanted to bring this up is how long did it take to get there? And there's this concept related to the thousand day principles called the 10 year career. And it's just a spitball napkin math thing, but it looks like this, Norman. For three years, you're going to have to be a hardcore apprentice. You are going to have to learn something valuable by working in an organization that provides value. That's what a lot of the candidates are doing over at Dynamite Jobs right now. That's what a lot of our apprentices have done. This is sort of like your, your, your ante at the game of entrepreneurship. You're going to have to put three years minimum into a career. Often it's much, much more than that, just to understand you know, what the lay of the land is. The next three years, say you want to jump ship from your career after three years of, of learning your knowledge, build your own thing. You, know, you got to toil away for three years. By the way, Ian, you want to take a guess at the average age of a successful startup founder? Yeah, if it's written by uh, the Silicon Valley Media Company dot com, then I'd say it's like twenty four. In actuality, it's probably like forty years old. It's forty two. Yeah, it makes sense. Typically, the more career experience you have, the more likely the business that you toil for a thousand days are is going to be successful. Now, there's another side to it. If you're waiting until you're forty two to start your first business, you're less likely to start that first business because you're probably getting paid pretty good by the time you're 42. So that's the other side of it, right? You might have a lot of commitments by the time you're 42. But, you know, if you're listening right now and you're you're 40 plus or whatever, you're in a great spot provided you can take a step back in terms of your earnings, toil away through those 1000 days. And there's ways to mitigate that too by the time you get to that age, you might be able to find investors money that's affordable for you to take relative to the valuation you think your company's worth. So there's other ways to do it. Let me just lay this out, Ian, and then get your comment. Let's take that that first period, call it three years, whatever. That's where you're learning your industry, getting paid by somebody else. That next three years is when you start that business, get through it, pay yourself back what you were maybe making before. And then that final three years of this hypothetical 10-year career is really when you get into that earning torque band. You know, your business has been cruising along for some time. You're able to hire managers, key staff members to run it on your behalf. And that's really what we're talking about here. I think entrepreneurship is probably minimum a 10-year commitment in someone's life. Kind of answer this like a little bit more specifically, Dan, because I sure. think you gave like a great kind of overview of like the trajectory of an entrepreneur. I want to point out a couple like specifics about our situation in case he's asking like specifically what happened with us. The first three years that you mentioned, we were actually basically working for someone else in the same industry that we started a business in. So product manufacturing and design. So 
boom, shortcut right there because we're getting paid to do it. So then when you start day one with your company, you already have experience, ties, relationships, all that good stuff. Yep. And hopefully you can start making money sooner. So I think you're at an extreme disadvantage if you're working somewhere now currently that's not going to parlay into whatever your next business is. You're at an extreme disadvantage if you're not looking for every parlay available to you. That is the name of the game. And you know one of our standard boilerplate pieces of advice around here is, look, if your job isn't going to contribute to the business that you know, you're going to start one day, then get in a better job. The next thing I'll say, and I'll just answer this specifically as I remember it, which uh, is probably favorable for me, but not actually true necessarily. I worked my ass off for three years and then basically chilled for the next five before we sold the company. And let me get specific about what I mean by chilled. Like I definitely worked several hours a day in the beginning. And then yes, it became five hours at the end of it. But those five hours, I had like direct input on the most impactful areas of that business. Meaning I was like making decisions. Basically for five hours a week, I was making the toughest decisions in the business. And that's a pretty cool, fun place to be. I definitely have some regrets about not being there anymore. And I think we're certainly trying to get back to that place. One of the things that I'm noticing with people that are coming to Dynamite Jobs for us to help them hire, and this I didn't necessarily see this that much when we were doing it, is like people are elevating themselves out of their roles. Like people are coming to us saying, like, hey, I'm the lead developer, I'm also the founder. Like, I gotta take a step back from this. I'm just trying to be the founder. This is something that I did from day one in that organization, Dan, was like I fired myself from every job that I had because I was just trying to take it to the extreme. You know, we did read that book before I work week. I wasn't necessarily trying to work less, but I was definitely trying to remove myself from the business to see what kind of organization we could grow without our basic daily inputs. Now, yeah. that's not to say like we didn't make the hard decisions because I did. That was a part of my job for those five hours a week, but I was actively trying to fire myself from my job every day. Yeah. And I'd say that's how I got to the point where I was only working five hours a week was I essentially fired myself. It's totally possible, right? But it's really about, it's like an asset, a cash flow, and a money problem. Or you could even say just a margin problem. Like at the end of the day, you just need to build an asset that provides you margin in an assetized or an automated way. It's another way of saying it's an asset, like not a job. Norm's next question, what about Dan's time commitment? Let me answer this for you, Dan. Dan went off to build another business basically. Crazy. He helped our organization diversify into uh, what became the Dynamite Circle and now what is Dynamite Jobs and previously Dynamite Deals. Part of the power of our relationship and our friendship and the way that we work together is, especially at that time, we were working on very different things. Part of that was based on our location. And then the other part of that was just based on our personal interests. It's going to be interesting to see, actually, Dan, like how this plays out for our future business because we're kind of working on the same thing in a lot of ways. But we are, I'm already seeing each other, like kind of go to our own corners and build our own things within this organization. So, one of the things that Dan and I have always kind of wanted to do was have a singular focus, but then also work on our own stuff. And it feels like Dynamite Jobs is going to give us that ability. Yeah. Speaking of time, I mean, I worked a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, all the time. And because I loved it. It was really, really fun. And, you know, part of it was just seeing value. And I think that that gets entrepreneurs excited. And 
when Ian and I started doing this funky stuff, we were like building these offices with these young developers and marketers overseas. The goal was to tell the story of the product company, right? We were going to go to every valet company in America, every cat furniture buyer in America and tell them why our wares are better than the competitions. But I started to see value in like what we were doing. Like, wow, this is kind of crazy that two guys are doing it this way, you know? And we started looking around and saying like, I guess we're kind of doing like what Seth Godin says and like kind of what Tim Ferriss says, but like there's not a lot of other people out there doing this, you know? And then I started to see value in that itself. The very narrative of the business we were building had value to it. Because again, people want a four hour work week. And in order to do it, you're not going to be able to build a business like everybody else's. Those were the things that came together that really dominated my workday, Norman, is trying to figure out, you know, what the opportunities were, what this crazy stuff we were doing. And you can hear about it if you listen in the back catalog. We talked about outsourcing to the Philippines. We did retreats. We started a private community. We did this podcast, all kinds of stuff like that. So that was really my, the lion's share of my time commitment, along with building the teams that would do the marketing and the development for the product company. So there's two final questions here, Ian, I'll meld together and just sort of get your parting thoughts on it. How long did it basically take for you to be able to work less than 10 hours a week? I'm just going to put words in Norman's mouth here. It seems like he's saying, you know, I'm curious about this concept of building a lifestyle business that pays me a good living that really only takes about 10 hours a week. And we both know lots of multimillionaires that do it in, in less than 10 hours a week. Considering that building a business that can be run on this amount of time is a lifestyle choice, what would you do differently while building your current business in times of commitment, lifestyle, business, and culture? That's a lot. I'll I'll just say this, and this is just like the simplification. You need two things in your business, I believe, to be successful with what you're talking about. You need margin and you need smart people around you that you're willing to hire to take over your responsibilities. And you need to get on the phone with Ian for 30 minutes to give him some of your margin. That's See, you brought it all back. I love it, man. I brought it all back. But seriously, you need margin so you can hire people and so you can afford to step away from your business. And then you actually need to hire people to do the things that you're doing. And that's how you, you remove yourself from the business. If you're stuck on controlling every aspect of your business, if you don't think that there's somebody out there better than you that can do all these functional aspects of the business, then you're wrong. And you're probably not going to achieve these types of results. And it turns out that all these people don't want to be entrepreneurs, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So go hire them to work in your business. I totally agree with you that in our space, business models, like say, you know, having a dropshipping website or having an affiliate website or something are overvalued when it comes to creating this quote four hour workweek lifestyle. And what's undervalued is the quality of the business itself, which is more really about margin and team and how they can deliver it. I think like building a four hour workweek style business, right, which typically means those those sorts of friendly business models or automated business models is not always really the best strategy for actually achieving it. A better strategy, but a little bit less legible one is creating a truly great business like the ones you hear about on the show all the time. That's probably going to take you about five to 10 years. That's the honest answer. Yeah, maybe shorter, maybe shorter nowadays. I wouldn't be surprised if the thousand day principle gets absolutely crushed by the next thousand days. Like I do think that things are changing faster. I think 
Honestly, it's going to get easier to build the business that Norman's describing here today. I hope so. Alrighty, and final question for today. Ben writes to say, I've read Before the Exit, our fine ebook, 2.5 times now. 2.5. Two wasn't enough. I love it. I want to know what the half is because that's probably the most important part. We'll just cut out the rest of it. I think that the half is the thought experiments. That's the best part. You got to get in there for the thought experiments. Uh, it's such a fun, you know, we started our business, Ian, with a set of thought experiments. It was a dream line, a dream line that we heard about in the four hour work week. And who cares what the experiment is? It's fun to sit down with your business partner, with someone that's invested, and just to dream up ideas to do the old napkin math. And that was what inspired us when coming up with the concepts in before the exit. Okay, back to Ben. Overall, it raised a lot of questions for me, but I have some more questions on the specifics of what to do. I think Dan should follow up with this, like how we managed and ran a million-dollar product business with only six hours a week of our time. You know, you make uh, great claims and need great justification, boss man. What did uh, general manager compensation look like? How was the operation run? And critically, and this was tossed in by our producer, if we didn't have the income from that second business aforementioned, would we have sold the product business? I don't think it's fair to the person in that position to necessarily tell what they're making because they're actually still in that position. I have no idea what they're making now, by the way. The question is, like, how much do you have to pay a GM to run a business like that? Anywhere from fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and the reason I say the range is that is because I've seen people even do it for less. The nuances matter. Yeah, the nuances matter. The industry matters. Where your company is located matters. What people's expectations are, they matter. The opportunities ahead of you for your business matter too, because at different pay levels, people are going to want to like have the ability to take advantage of an opportunity versus not. And so that's always like a, uh, an interesting one. If you want someone with less experience to come in and just like keep it rolling, you're at the lower end of the range. If you want someone who's exploited opportunities in the past and can bring that knowledge to your company, you're looking at maybe beyond that upper range. And so it's going to depend a lot on like what your vision for the position is too and what you think the market opportunity is. And while we're talking about hiring, just somebody came to us the other day, Dan, for a specific hire over at Dynamite Jobs. And they gave a range that I thought was like really fair for a, a salary. I think at the time we were talking about a chief marketing officer. They gave a really acceptable range. And I was like, well, what if it costs 20% more than that? And they were like, yeah, that's totally cool. I think that that's interesting to be able to operate like that because essentially that business has plenty of margin and they're actually looking for somebody as an opportunity, not necessarily as like a liability. So I think that's like really important. It's like if you're trying to micromanage the cost of like your GM and all these different positions, like you might not have enough margin built into your product, like we talked about before. You might not be able to actually afford this person. Producer Jane mentions, you know, well, if you guys didn't have the income coming from your podcast and your private community and stuff, would you have sold? At the time, uh, yeah, because uh, we were looking for an exit. We were looking for a way to like pat ourselves on the back. We were looking for change. I was a little bit burned out. In retrospect, Dan, us at like 40 now, would we have sold? What's your answer? Hold, hold. For sure, yeah. (laughs) Cash flows, not cash piles. 
people are asking for specifics specifically, I just wish we would have held on to it and just continued to build our portfolio because especially we're seeing in, you know, this last year's environment, you know, better to be sitting in assets right now than sitting in cash. And so with this particular asset, one that we spent a lot of hard work building, I'd love to see what kind of opportunities we'd have exposure to if we still had a manufacturing business in the portfolio. It's easy to say that, Ian, right? But, you know. Well, it's easy to say that, but here's here's one of the main reasons why I'd say hold. At the time we sold that business, like there wasn't hardly any legibility around it. We had to find like a business broker that focused on online business at the time. This was only like five years ago. There was like two or three of them, right? So like yeah. the amount of legibility that's starting to become around these different types of businesses, I mean, they're, they're starting to become legible assets. We were talking about this the other day, like what trailer parks are trading on, yeah. like what SaaS companies are trading on. Like everybody's starting to understand the value of these organizations. At the time, we had to take like a pretty low multiple. And I think like now it would actually be better because there's legibility. Yeah, 100%. Our world is becoming assetized, you know, or more and more value sources are becoming legible. I think that's one of the great promises of the cryptocurrency revolution that there will be, you know, just a greater ability to transact in value, to find liquidity, to see value, and to communicate it to others more and more efficiently. Final point on that, Dan. When we talk about like legibility, like I'll never forget like the conversation with uh, our business broker, and he was basically like, trying to bait me into taking one of the first deals. Because for them, you know, it's a typical thing, like the longer it stays on the market, the harder they have to work and like their percentage stays the same. But like the tactic was essentially like, man, you don't know what's like coming down the pike. Like this could be the best offer that you get. And again, when we talk about like legibility, like it's very possible to put your business out there and to have people understand that it's for sale when it's not really even for sale necessarily. And to also see other businesses that are for sale that are similar to your business. So you can kind of like get this view of like what's possible before you do something. And I think that's super valuable, especially when you're talking about a high stakes game like selling your business. So if you have any questions about like selling your business, I'm happy to answer them. Maybe if I can, you know, email me if you're thinking about putting your, your business for sale. Certainly, there's a lot of brokers out there and there's a lot of other people in the M&A space too, that should be able to tell you kind of what your business is worth and whether or not it's going to make an impact on your personal bottom line. When you sell it, that's something that you should be able to figure out. Yeah. And another thing you could consider back to our first question, when we talked about purpose-built businesses based on certain incorporation structures, certain you know lifestyle structures or whatever, you can also do the same with you know building certain asset classes. I really think it makes sense, Ian, you know, just like you would say, build a business based in Singapore, based in America, I'm based here, they're based there, whatever, like that kind of conscious design of a profitable, streamlined organization. I'm going to do my marketing here, my manufacturing here, I'm going to do my sales here. You can also do the same thing with the types of assets you're building in the very, very first place. Take a look at these marketplaces, talk to these brokers, figure out what actually people value a great deal, build those assets. That's it for this week. We consider your questions assets to this pod. You can let us know on Twitter at Tropical MBA or at anything Ian. Email us at this domain, Dan and Ian. And our producer is Jane at tropicalmba.com. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.